Yeah, good morning, Salt City. Um, my name's Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. And if you're, if you're new, uh, if you've just started coming to this church, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you, you walked into a family moment, right? And we're just going to embrace that because it needs to happen. And if you've been a part of this church, um, yeah, you've been walking through this with the Stevensons, right? You've, you've babysat their kids, you've prayed, you've baked food, you've done everything that you could, and we're walking through this together, right? And um, not only that, but the Bible talks about weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who mourn, and the Stevensons are sitting in front of me, and so I'm, I'm preaching to them. Um, but not only that, but also believing with them that there's hope and, and fighting with them to believe that, right? And so we're going we're gonna to keep going in the series that we had, had planned on. We're doing mini-series this summer, and so this one's going to be on John 4. But, I mean, I pretty much scrapped this thing on Wednesday because I'm thinking about Jude. And so we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about hope. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can start flipping to John 4. We're also going to have the verses on the screen. Um, But yeah, two hours before Jude passed away, Drew sent our staff team a text message, and it said this, Jude is likely on his way home tonight. So sweet to be able to help usher this little gift into eternity, with an exclamation point. Who in the world responds like that? <laughs> right? Like, like your five-month-old son is passing away, you're putting exclamation points in text messages. That's weird. That's not the typical way that you should respond, right? I get anger, I get frustration, I get sadness, I even get shock and like not knowing how to feel it, but an exclamation point is just odd. Right? So why can Drew respond like that? Is it because Drew is amazing and extraordinary? No. <laughs> you feel loved by that, right? I'm not hating on him. He actually, he's very clear about this with all of us, and he wants to be clear about that with you. None of us are. We are, we are exceedingly ordinary human beings, okay? So why can Drew respond like that? It's not because of who he is. It's because of who he knows and what he knows. Who he knows is Jesus Christ, the embodiment of hope, the only thing that can hold you in times like this. And what he knows is this, that there's hope in Christianity and that it's a hope for home, for a place better than this one, the place that we were made for, that, that not only can, can we look forward to that place someday, but we can get a taste of that place now through knowing Jesus because he's the embodiment of it. That Jesus is hope for us now. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about home and the longing that we all have for it. And in this story, the way that Jesus talks about home is he says this. He says, we're all thirsting for something. We're spiritually thirsty and nothing in this world is going to quench that thirst. All right, so let's look at John 4. John 4, 3 through 6 to start out. He left Judea and he departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, that's crazy, Jesus is God, but he's also a human being. He's tired. He's been walking a long time through the heat. He's exhausted. Wearied as he was through the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So when you see sixth hour, uh, almost all commentators agree that that's noon. So it's the middle of the day. So Jesus is taking a journey, right? And he can't get on a plane, he can't drive a car. He's walking, and he's walking through the Middle East. It's hot. This is exhausting. And he comes to a well outside of the city, and he's gonna take a break. And he's with his disciples, but they don't have a bucket to be able to pull water up from this well. It's probably over 100 feet deep. So they're at the well, they're super thirsty, but they can't get any water, so he sends his disciples into town to get some food and to get some water, and he's hanging out at this well, And it's the middle of the day, and he sees something really weird. It's a woman from Samaria who's walking towards the well by herself. Okay, here's why this is weird. A couple reasons. The first one is that she's alone. So this would not typically have happened. So this is a hard job. you got to walk about a mile outside of town to get to the well. You're carrying this huge, like, clay vase on your shoulder. And when you're walking back into town, it's full of water. So this is exhausting work. It's no fun doing terrible work by yourself, so you do it with your friends, right? So the women of the city would, would do this together, and they certainly wouldn't do it at noon. Why? Because, again, you're in the Middle East. It's hot. Don't do stuff like that in the middle of the day. You do it right away in the morning or at night when it's cooler. So there's something weird about this woman. There's a reason why she's alone at the well at noon. It's a strange sight, and we're going to get to that. But this woman is walking up to the well, and she's clearly been trying to avoid people. That's why she's there alone, and to her horror... She sees a Jewish man sitting at the well, and she's starting to go, uh-oh, this is going to get rough, and we'll see why. So verse 7 through 9, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John puts in this kind of explanation of that sentence in the parentheses, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so there is a long, bad history between Jews and Samaritans. Long story short, the Samaritans were originally part of the Jewish nation, then they were overtaken by the Assyrians, and some of them stayed in the land and kind of hung out, but they sort of stopped being Jews. They, they intermarried with people from other countries, which was a no-no for Jews, And they kind of created their own morality system. And not only that, but they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was a, that's a big deal. Like, the the temple was the centerpiece of Jewish life and Jewish religion. And you don't just go building new temples. And so the Jews were snooty about it. They were were snobs. They didn't like the Samaritans. And, And, like, so much so that at times when Jews would have to travel through Samaria, they would walk all the way around that region just so they wouldn't have to talk to a Samaritan. They thought they would become unclean if they even had a conversation with them, and Jesus is asking for a drink out of this woman's water bucket. And it's not only that she's a Samaritan, there's all of these other barriers between him and her. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman. Now, don't, okay, don't hear me wrong on that, okay? We're not, so what I'm saying is in that culture, it was a patriarchal society. 
It's not how it should have been, but it was. And it was common at that time for a man to never speak to a woman in public, even his wife. So he's talking to a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan, he's talking to a woman, and she's completely broken. She's an outcast, and we're going to figure out why that is. But Jesus walks up to her and just starts a conversation. The disciples are going to come back later and be real freaked out by this, but Jesus doesn't care. And so she's like, why are you talking to me, dude? Like, get away. Like, I don't want your judgment. I don't, I don't want this, this stuff that you're going to lay on me about our history. I don't want to deal with this. But then Jesus answers her like this, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now she's really confused because Jesus just transitioned to the spiritual and she completely missed it. So she's like, all right, dude, you're going to give me some water. Where are you going to get a bucket? How are you going to get water out of this hundred foot well? What are you talking about? But this is a theme throughout John 4 where Jesus is on this spiritual reality and everybody's just missing it. But look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus flips the script on this woman and he says, look, lady, he probably didn't say lady. I don't know why I just said that, but look, Samaritan woman whom I love. Um, uh, Look, I don't need you. You need me. You should be asking me for something. Why? Because she's thirsty. There's this deep ache in her soul for something more, something better than what she has, and she can't figure out how to satisfy it. And you have to see that we are that woman. That, that thirst, that ache of the soul, like we all experience that. So I just got back from vacation a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. We, we flew to Seattle, and then we road tripped down the West Coast. So we went Seattle to Portland. Then we got into the Redwoods in Northern California. We ended in San Francisco and flew back. And it was, it was so sweet. But my favorite part of that was when we got out in nature. Right? And so have you ever, like some of you have been to the Redwoods. This is nuts. So we, we, there was like trails we were supposed to be on. But we had just gotten into the Redwoods and we just ran out of the car and like ran into the Redwoods and just got lost in there. And it was like getting into a different world, right? But my, my favorite part, one of the most beautiful places I think in the world is the Pacific Coast Highway. It's the one highway that kind of snakes along the coast of California all the way down. And it's crazy because on your left are these, these mountains, these cliffs. And then there's this little highway and then on your right is another cliff and then it's the Pacific Ocean, and I think we've got some photos we can throw up that we took. Um, but we got off on one of these little viewpoints, and we were standing out there, and there was nobody around us. We haven't hit the cities yet. We're in Northern California, right? There's nobody around us, and we're looking out over the ocean and these giant cliffs. And so I looked at my buddy that we were traveling with, and it's like, let's go. And we climbed over the, the viewpoint area, which we probably shouldn't have done. Um, and we climbed down the cliff, and our feet hit the sand, and we ran across a beach that no one was on and went and stood in the Pacific Ocean. And I just stood there and like watched the waves coming in. 
and I don't know how to describe it, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about because I think you've all had this moment where it was like, you never want it to end, right? Like you just want to hold that moment forever. Like you're not thinking about anything else. There's nothing bothering you. You just, you're sitting, it, it was transcendent, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You've had those moments when you're looking up at the stars or whatever that's been for you. Here's the problem. It always ends. So I'm having this epic moment, and then I have to get back in a car, and I have to deal with traffic and parking and decisions and all that junk, right? Even when I'm on vacation, like, life isn't like that all the time. It always ends. And this is my point. In those moments, you're getting a little taste of what you were meant to live for, a taste of home. Right, but we're not there yet, and so as hard as you try, you can't hold on to it. it. It falls through your fingers like sand, right? You just can't grab it. And it's just enough to sort of whet your appetite for the, the place that you, were, that you belong, the place that you were supposed to live. But it can never last. Okay, C.S. Lewis, I think, explains this, this really well, just in our normal life, kind of what happens. So listen to this, C.S. Lewis. Most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and they want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There was something that we have grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. To be a human being is to feel this tension for what life should be and realize that it's not. Something has evaded us. We're spiritually thirsty for more. And nothing in this world, not the best vacations, not the best relationships can satisfy that thirst, that longing. And so Jesus does a lot of weird stuff, honestly. I think this is one of the weirdest things that he does. So he finally gets this woman to agree. Like, she, I don't know, she's taking a shot. She's like, okay, cool, man. You got this like special water that's gonna make me happy. I'll give it a shot, why not? So she get, or he gets her to agree to take this water and then it, he immediately changes the subject. Or he apparently immediately changes the subject. But if you pay attention, we're gonna find out that he's not actually changing the subject at all. He starts to talk about her husband. Verse 15 through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus, Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come here. So random. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We now know why this woman was alone at the well. It's because she's immoral. She's a sinner. Did you catch that? She's been running from man to man, and now she's living with a dude that she's not even married to. And how creepy would that be if some dude that you don't know all of a sudden knows everything about your life and just drops it on you? Okay, that's the situation that this woman is in. 
It's true that she doesn't have a husband. She's had five of them, and she's sleeping around with men that aren't her husband. Okay, there can be stigma on that now, on sleeping around now. Can you imagine what it was like then? It almost certainly would have meant that she would have been an outcast from society, that her friends and more than likely her family would have abandoned her. So my question is this. Why is this woman willing to sacrifice her whole life to chase men? Right? She would have known the consequences of what she was doing. She would have known that it would cost her everything, that she would be an outcast, that she would be alone, but she chooses to pursue this anyway. Why? Because she was craving significance. She had a deep ache in her soul for something more than what she had, and she thought that she could find it in men. And so she tragically throws away her life and she pursues it in relationship and she goes to one man and when he doesn't satisfy, she goes to the next and then she goes to the next until she's in a deeper pit than she ever could have imagined. She's pursuing worth and significance but she can't find it and she's thrown away her life as a result. She had put her hope in men, her hope for the good life. If I can just have that, then I'll be okay. Okay, so we do that. You know that, right? So, so growing up, I, uh, I was a sports guy. That was like, that was like my thing. I, I was the dude that was, that was good at sports, or at least attempting to be. And my parents would drop me off at the golf course in the morning, and they would literally have to pick me up when it got dark. And they would almost have to drag me off the golf course because I was trying to convince them that you can golf at night. And, and so like that's how, that's how I rolled. Uh, we were athletes, except for we were not runners, Right, my, my grandpa's here, grandpa waved everybody. Just wave, grandpa, that's my grandpa, he's awesome, talk to him later. Grandpa, you did not produce people that can run. <laughs> right, I don't know if you could, but everyone else, like we, Adams's don't do the, the running thing. Um, so in eighth grade, I went out for track. Why? Because there's something in track for the, we'll call them bigger people. I was in a fluffy phase in eighth grade. And, and this is what people in fluffy phases do in track. I'm sorry if this was you. Don't take offense to this. I'm just talking about me. But they have heavy objects that you throw, right? They give you this round ball called a shot put, and you throw it. And then they give you a discus, and you throw that. And I'm like, I'm down for that. I'm down for throwing stuff. Um, and so that's what I did in track. But I went to a small school. And in small schools, there's not a lot of backup. So if somebody doesn't show up for a track meet, you're in trouble. And so some dork didn't show up for a track meet right and my coach came up to me and just said this Adams you're running the 400 <laughs> and then he just left he just said that and left I'd never run a 400 in my life but I immediately decide like I'm winning this thing like that's what I do I'm good at sports so I'm gonna win this and so I build up my strategy I'm gonna pace myself and I'm gonna really kick it at the end so I'm lining up at the 400, which is just a horrible race, terrible invention. So I'm, I'm lined up, they shoot the gun off, and I'm going to pace myself, and everyone around me takes off at a dead sprint. I found out in the middle of the race that it's a sprint. And so I say out loud, you've got to be kidding me, and take off running trying to catch him. So I run for about 100 meters, and I'm just gassed. And so they take off, and it's a good race, and everybody's standing up, and they're clapping, they're cheering them on, all this stuff. And, and then there was a pause. And then everyone sat down, still waiting. <laughs> still waiting. 
And then I came around the corner at like a slow jog at this point. And I literally get this like sympathy golf clap. And I finally crossed the finish line and quit track. It, it was terrible. Okay, like I still to this day, I feel it. Like I feel it in my bones. Why was it so bad? You're thinking because you made a fool of yourself, Joy. It's true. But why do I care as a 28-year-old man how fast I could run a tr- around a track in eighth grade? Because it wasn't just a race. It was my identity. It was my significance in life. Right? I had said, if I'm good at sports, then I'm worth something, then I'm significant, then my life matters, it means something. And when I wasn't good, I lost not just the race, but my identity. Where is that true for you? Maybe it's a little bit more sophisticated, but do you have to succeed? Are you, what are, where are you terrified of failing? Is that in your job? Do you have to be successful and so you sacrifice your family on the altar of your job? Maybe for you it's your reputation, right? You, you have to be, you have to live up to your own expectations for yourself or other people's expectations for you. You have to live kind of this put together Christian life. You have to maintain your reputation. Maybe for you it's like this woman, right? You're pursuing it in relationships and so you, you, your spouse is not just your spouse but they hold the keys to your heart. They, they hold your identity, and so when they're not everything you want them to be, it crushes you. Or, or maybe for you, it's your spouse isn't good enough, so you got to find a new one. Or, or maybe you're single and, and, and you're terrified of being alone. And so you've got to get married someday. Or maybe you've got to stay single so you can live this sort of interesting, extraordinary life that you've dreamed of. I don't know what that is for you. I can't read your mind. But someone in the room can, actually. Jesus is here He's with us, and he does the same thing to you that he did to the woman. Same thing to me. He knows. He knows where you're looking for satisfaction in your life. If, If you're sitting on that well, and Jesus comes and sits down next to you, what's he asking you about? What's he kind of poking at where you're looking for satisfaction in this world? But I want you to see this. Jesus exposes this woman in her sin, not because he wants to shame her, but because he wants to offer her something better. Everything that she's been longing for and never found. This woman had felt the consequences of putting her hope in something in this world. And this is what she found when, we, when she chased it. That instead of being loved, she blew through every relationship she had ever had. Instead of being desired, she was alone. Instead of experiencing the good life, she walked around every day in shame. She tried to find life in this world. And she came to the ultimate end of that pursuit. Hopelessness. She'd given up. And this is why. It's because the things that she had thought were worth living for had let her down. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever chased what you've wanted and found out that it wasn't anything close to as good as you thought it would be? That it couldn't satisfy? But here's the crazy thing about this story. Is in the midst of all of her junk, in her mess, in her sin, in her weakness... 
Who's the only person that's willing to talk to her? Jesus, the one that she's hurt the most because he loves her and he has everything that she's looking for and never found. The woman had been running away from him, but Jesus tracked her down. While she chased other loves, Jesus was chasing her. Do you know that Jesus will track you down? You can put up every barrier, right? This woman had every barrier between her and him, and Jesus was like the Kool-Aid man. He just, he just busted through. I didn't plan on that. It just happened in my brain. I kind of lost like the moment. Um, let's bring it back. So he just busts through these barriers to get to her, and he does the same thing for you. He chases you down in, your, in his love for you. And why does he chase you down? Is it to shame you? No. He wants to offer you hope. Hope. The belief that this is not the end of the story. That our sin is not the last word on who we are. That weakness doesn't disqualify you from his love. That there's something more than what we have. That that ache in our souls is there for a reason. That there's a real place that's coming to us where we can be satisfied in him. That not only can he remove our sin, but he can remove our pain. And those moments on vacation or the, those moments when you have the transcendence, they're not so painful just because you can't hold on to that moment. They're painful because you know in that moment that that's the way it was supposed to be and that this place isn't like that anymore. That it should be better. But listen to verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternity. That's the hope that's promised to you. That Jude is in a place more real than this. That this place is like a shadow. That's the substance. That's the real thing. That, that sickness, that heart failure, that death is not the last word. The belief that the second that Drew and Melissa let go of Jude's hand, that Jesus grabbed it in heaven. Hope means that Jude got to go home. That Jesus invited him there and that he invites you too. I want to tell you about home. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to be with us. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And listen, to the thirsty, 
I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. On that day, you will drink from the spring of the water of life and your soul will be satisfied because you will be in the place that you were born for. And you will look into the eyes of your Savior, the embodiment of hope, and you will know him. And only Jesus can give you a drink from the water of life because it's only through Jesus that you can come home. Notice that it said that it's the water of life without payment. You can't pay for it, you can't earn it, you can't achieve it. You know Jesus and then you get to go home. Your soul aches to come home. Trust him to bring you there. Have you ever been up, gotten up early to watch a sunrise? The college students in the room are like, no, I've literally never done that. <laughs> Someday. Someday you'll be a full-grown adult, you'll get up early, it'll be great. Um, but if you get up to watch a sunrise, right, it's, it's completely dark, and then you look off in the horizon, and there, at first there's just a little bit of light, and then it starts kind of changing colors, right? And then right before the sun rises, there's these little rays of light, and that's how you know the sun's about to rise. That's what it's like to live as a Christian in this world. You stand there and you're surrounded in darkness. You're surrounded in suffering, in pain, in sin, other people's sin, your sin. You're surrounded by unmet expectations for what this life should be. You're surrounded in darkness, but if you look off in the horizon, you can see that the sun is about to rise. And hope is standing there in the dark and it's fixing your eyes on what's coming and it's seeing those promises, those rays of light and believing that one day the world will not be dark because the sun is gonna rise. That sun is Jesus Christ and he will come back and he will eradicate darkness and he'll turn everything into light. And like Revelation 21 says, he will wipe every tear from every eye and he will make this place new. And it will be everything that it was supposed to be, everything that you've hoped for and never found. The sun is going to rise. Look at the horizon and hope. Believe that he's gonna come back. He's gonna come for us that one day we're gonna see him face to face. So I wanna end with one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis that I think summarizes this. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for hope. I don't understand what this world would be like without that. Um, I don't know how to get through something like this without that. I, even with that, still, sometimes I don't know, but we're clinging to you, Jesus. We want to be people who believe 
believe that this isn't the end of the story, that there's something more for us and thanks for making that promise to us and thank you, Jesus, that it's not up to me. If I had to earn that thing, it would be over. There would be no hope for me, but I don't have to earn it because you earned it for me and we praise you for that. You're amazing for that. We love you for that and we can't wait to get to be with you to actually see you. And so we celebrate that together. Give us hope. Amen.